You want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I love Christmas for a lot of reasons. Most importantly, because of what Jesus has done for us. But when you think about Christmas, as we are entering into this Christmas season, uh, not just here at Red Lane and not just for your individual family, but as we enter into the Christmas season as a as a world, as, as, a, as an earth, all the people of humanity are confronted with a great question once again. Who is this Jesus? Think about this. All around the world, nation after nation after nation are being confronted with a question like that. Who is this Jesus and why are people worshiping him? Why are they speaking of him? Why are they doing all of these things in the name of Jesus? As you know, Christmas, it's the celebration of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you think about something with me? What is it that makes his birth, what is it that makes his coming into this world so significant that after two millennia, we are still celebrating that birthday? I don't know of any other person in all of history who's celebrated like Jesus is. You take these two questions here, who is Jesus and why are we continuing to celebrate him after 2,000 years? And and these are the two great questions of history. There's a lot of speculation that that surrounds or, or moves around those two questions. There's always been questions about that. Why, why, why is he such a historical figure? Why is he such a, a significant figure? Why is he famous? What is it about this Jesus? Some people will downplay his significance, and they will question the historicity of Jesus' life and his ministry. They'll call those things into question. Others will reject him altogether. They will just kind of write him off without any serious consideration whatsoever. And then there are others who will hold up Jesus as a true historical figure, someone who lived and walked in this earth, and they will reconcile, or they will, they will say, they will declare that he is and was the savior of the world. That's the argument that's debated every season since Jesus has been resurrected. But at the beginning of the first century AD, there was a similar debate going on. It wasn't so much about Jesus, but it was about a coming Messiah. You see, many Jews in Palestine anticipated the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. They understood the prophecies of the Old Testament. They understood what they were forecasting and foreshadowing and pointing toward. But others heard that and rejected it as nothing more than a fable, nothing more than myths. Never considered it as something that could happen. And yet there were others who heard the news of a potential Messiah being born there and worked to kill him, King Herod being the first one to do that. And so what took place back then and what's taking place today are both grounded in understanding or one's understanding of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Why are we still celebrating his life after 2,000 years? You know, it's amazing that questions like this are still being asked, and and yet we're still asking the questions. Last week, I heard an interview. Perhaps you heard the interview as well. Uh, Kathy Lee Gifford was on many different uh, networks talking about her new book, book that's being or has been just released. I'm not sure which one is the case, but her book is titled The Jesus I Know, Honest Conversations and Diverse Opinions About Who He Is. 
Kathy Lee shared that her foundational question in each conversation that's recorded in her book was this. What does Jesus look like to you right now? What's Jesus look like to you right now? Now, full disclosure here, I've not read the book, uh, so I cannot uh, affirm it. I cannot uh, 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 deny it, I guess, or, or speak necessarily negatively against it. I've not read it. However, I have listened to her interview. I did look through the table of contents and see what the chapter breakdown would be and who's involved in those chapters. I've read through the introduction where she kind of lays the case out for what the book's going to be. And so when I looked at all that and heard what she said in the, in the, uh, in the interview, I was troubled by what I heard, or better yet, what I did not hear in both of those scenarios. You see, there was a very subjective stressing of people's experience, quote unquote, with Jesus. Seems that's where she's moving in the book to talk about the experience that someone has had with Jesus. Gifford even makes this statement in the book's introduction saying, Jesus is always the same, but he doesn't show up the same way to everyone. Now, on one level, I can get on board with her statement. I can get on board and and understand that when someone comes into uh, an experience with Jesus, and I say that word loosely, I use that word loosely, but when a person comes encounter with the gospel and begins to understand who Jesus is, the scenario or the circumstances around that are different for every single person. Sometimes a person is encountering Jesus because they've had deep loss and grief in their life, and, and they're on a search for truth, they're on a search for healing, and it leads them to the gospel, and they hear who Jesus is. Others, it may be a different scenario, and so it's different in all of the circumstances for each person, and yet I would argue that Jesus is the same person and reveals himself as God and Messiah to every single person. Person. It's an objective rather than subjective approach. So what we find here is nowhere in the interview, nowhere in the introduction, does Kathy Lee Gifford ground a person's experience with Jesus in the written word of God. Instead, the emphasis seems to fall on dreams and emotions and things like that. It's about the experience. Here's what the point is. As Christians, as those who understand who Jesus is, we've believed on the gospel, we've denied our sin, we've, we've turned from it, we've trusted Jesus for forgiveness. Here's what we know and here's what we believe. All that we can know and understand about Jesus is exclusively contained in the Bible. Amen? You will not have an experience outside of the Word of God to tell you who Jesus is. Now, you say, well, you don't believe in dreams? I absolutely believe that God speaks to us through dreams. I absolutely do do believe that God uses dreams to speak into people's lives. Take it at Acts chapter 10, and you'll see a picture of that. But here's what I know about that. When God does speak in that sort of way, it's still grounded and rooted in the Word of God. You're not going to learn something about Jesus in a dream or from some other uh, medium that's outside or contrary to the word of God that we have. Amen. So with that said, many people's view of Jesus or who he was and is today is very much different than the way he's revealed in the Bible. And so uh, the, the, way, the way that happens is they form opinions from outside sources, maybe extra biblical sources, maybe it's an assumption, it's a hope, it's something else. But from their point of view, there are many answers to the question of who is Jesus? 
But for us who believe the Bible, there's only one source for the answer to that question. It's found in the Word of God. During the days of the early church, a very similar debate was taking place. Think about what the history uh, that the Bible or the New Testament gives us about Jesus. And if you, if you know the history there, you know that during the days of the early church, this debate was taking place because they understood and had heard of a man named Jesus who had been born into this world, lived a good life, performed miracles, did ministry, was crucified, and many claimed that he had been resurrected from the dead. For that reason, there was a lot of confusion as to the veracity of his claims. See, some heralded him as Israel's Messiah. They understood and believed him to be the Savior King who had come to forgive their sin. But others rejected Jesus. They regarded him as nothing more than a liar and a lunatic, someone to dismiss. Yet there were others. His followers in the church who continued to preach and to teach about his death, his burial, and resurrection. They even went so far as to record on paper the history and made the case for faith. The case for faith is what we find right here in the gospel according to Luke. You see, the kingdom of God that Jesus had claimed to usher in did not resemble what the Jews anticipated. They expected a conquering king who would overthrow Rome and free them from tyranny. That's what the people during that early period believed of the Messiah. Yet Jesus came as a suffering servant. He was one who was killed at the hands of the Romans. He was not one who carried a sword. He most likely carried a staff. He was born in a manger rather than in a palace. I love how Jesus says in Luke 17, 20, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Jesus there in that chapter is explaining to the Pharisees who were questioning him about the kingdom, and he's explaining that they were looking at, at the things through the wrong lens. In essence, what he's saying is the kingdom he ushered in was an upside-down kingdom from their perspective. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, if not months, as we walk verse by verse through this gospel according to Luke. And so we're going to begin this series this morning. And as we get started here in Luke, I believe it's important that we know a few things about the author. We need to know a few things about his work, this gospel that we have before us. First of all, I just want you to know right off the bat that the gospel of Luke was written by Luke. You're not going to see his name in the, in, in the gospel itself. He's not going to see him self-identifying that he's writing this. But by AD 200, the early church had firmly established the understanding that Luke was the author of Luke, but not just Luke, the author of Acts. It's a two-part deal. No one questioned that. Luke was a well-educated and cultured Gentile believer. He served alongside the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. He stood by Paul's side during those times in prison. He was a physician, and very likely he could be identified in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 18, as that person who's spoken of as a strong preacher. He wrote his two-volume set, Luke and Acts, to provide Theophilus with a thorough record of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And think about this, and how it brought to fruition the kingdom of God. All the things leading up to it in the Old Testament find their culmination in Jesus and then are birthed out through the church. 
The Gospel of Luke belongs to what we would call the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we refer to as the synoptic Gospels. You say, what does the word synoptic mean? Well, if you look at that word, you break it into two parts. You obviously have optic. And so these three men writing these Gospels see together sin S-Y-N in that word is the Greek word for together. And so these men are looking at the life and ministry of Jesus through very similar lenses, yet they are telling different stories. Some will share a story that the other gospels don't have, but by and large, they are very similar in their nature and composition. As we think about Luke's gospel, it's unique in two ways. First, it's the longest gospel. It's about 100 verses longer than the gospel according to Matthew. And then second, it's the only gospel with a sequel. Again, Luke Acts is a two-part volume. Acts illustrates how the life and the ministry of Jesus was lived out through the believers in the church. And so together, these two books explain, think about this, how Jew and Gentile could end up as equals in a community that was planted by God for the nation of Israel. How is it that you and I, Gentile believers, in a continent across the ocean from where all of this took place, how can we be on equal ground with the Jews who are God's chosen people? That's what Luke describes through his gospel and then fleshes it out in the book of Acts as he talks about the ministry, the gospel ministry there in the early church. And so he begins by explaining his purpose in writing out the events surrounding the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what we find in Luke. He wrote to Theophilus and to others, those of us here today, so that we would know the truth. And there's something we need to know, to know today, and that is the truth of the Word of God. Look with me in Luke chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to go real far. We're going to go to verse 4. I've already mapped out the first uh, four chapters of where we're going to be, and so it'll be like midway through March, and we'll finally get through chapter 4. So it's going to, we're going to be in Luke a while. Just, uh, just buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Verse 1. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. There's a word that's been thrown around with... Uh, more and more use, I guess, over the last couple years, maybe the last five years, that has become one of those names that we probably never paid attention before, though it existed, but now it's, it's in great use. In fact, uh, it's on all of our radars, and you're probably wondering what that word is, and so I'm going to give it to you. It's misinformation. You ever heard that term, misinformation? Absolutely you have over the last five years because many networks, many newspapers, magazines, all kinds of talking heads in the media use this word constantly. So it's become quite prominent. Misinformation, by definition, is, and I quote, false or inaccurate information, especially that which is deliberately intended to deceive. And so we do hear this term used in the media quite often. 
And many times it's used, most of the time it's used to make the claim a person or another entity is attempting to change the narrative on an issue. And so they'll just simply say, well, that's misinformation. And so they kind of uh, dismiss the person and, and it basically it's an accusatory type of statement or type of word to get that person discredited. Misinformation, though, it may be new to us in our use, but it's not a new concept. We go all the way back to Eden, and you'll see misinformation right there. Think about what happened there in Eden. The serpent comes up to Eve and says, did God really say it's misinformation? It's interjected in an attempt to dissuade and to disrupt. So the person here spreading misinformation is working to influence what and how a person believes, which in turn is going to influence how he or she will behave. But the constant, the constant variable in the whole equation is belief. It's all about belief. No one can live without belief of some sort. So consequently, there are no unbelievers in the world. Rather, they're just people who have different beliefs about the same issue. Such a world, certainty then, becomes a rare and precious thing because you're not sure which is true and which is not true. What is true information? What is misinformation? But after all, when we think about this, truth by definition is exclusive. There can only be one truth. You're sitting in a pew, and in a couple months, that pew will be replaced with a chair. But if some person comes in here and says, I absolutely believe this chair is going to hold me up today. Or this pew is going to hold me up today. It may be 40 years old, but I believe this chair will hold me up. Another person comes into this room and says, I don't believe that chair is going to hold you up today. That pew is too old. You're going to fall through. Which is true? Only one. How do you know? You test it. Right? You guys have not fallen through the pews this morning. Yet. Right? Give you time. There can only be one truth. So it is to this end that we find Luke dispelling any and all misinformation. What he's doing here is he's bringing clarity to the truth, the truth about Jesus, the truth about the gospel message. See, Luke wanted Theophilus to be certain. He wanted Theophilus to be certain that he knew the truth as he added his gospel account to the record. And so from these verses that we've read this morning, I want to share with you four truths that we discover about our Christian faith. And the first one is this. The Christian faith, our faith, is an accomplished faith. It is an accomplished faith. Look again at verse 1. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke's work here, I want you to make sure you get this. Luke's work here that we have before is, it's not a novel. Luke's not writing a, a great mystery here. He's not writing some book that, that's going to be on the shelves, that's going to be a thriller, and that's the only purpose. No, Luke's purpose in writing this gospel is to talk about what has been accomplished in the faith. His gospel notes the precedent of others recounting what Jesus did. It's adding to the collection of others' accounts, talking about this accomplishment. See, many have recorded and described the life and the ministry of Jesus. The, those other accounts that Paul or Luke here is referring to are written accounts. See, this is a synoptic gospel, and so many of us, m me included, believe that Mark wrote his gospel first. 
And so we would say that Luke, as he's writing here, is writing under Mark in priority. He, he has Mark as a source. He, he also probably has Matthew that came before that. And so you've got their influence. There's another source that many scholars would label Q, and we don't have that resource. But if you look at the Synoptic Gospels and, and what they're saying about certain things, there's a, there's a common thread through it. And so where does that source result or revolve at? Where does it reside at, I should say? It's the letter Q. He's also doing an interview. He's talking to people. There's all of this work going into it, but he's not negating the oral and written accounts of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so they set the precedent. Their records, along with Luke's, describe how Jesus fulfilled and accomplished all that the Old Testament had promised concerning the coming Messiah. There were only around... There are only nearly three, I should say this, there are nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And here's what we know about Jesus. He fulfilled every single one of them. That's why it's an accomplished faith. Luke understands that because others understood it. And all of these are telling this story, speaking of how Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament was saying. Let me give you just two references about that. The first Messianic prophecy that we have in all of the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There God is speaking to the serpent. He's cursing him, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you and Eve and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We find the fulfillment of that prophecy in, uh, of Jesus, or it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says there, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, we could go to other places in the New Testament, the gospel specifically. We could see other references of how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. I read one of those in Matthew 1 earlier as I welcomed you here this morning. Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, to bring an end to the tyranny of Satan and sin. Another great fulfillment of prophecy that magnifies this season we're in right now was found in Isaiah 7:14. You know this verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know what that means, God with us. Well, we read in Matthew 1, verse 18 and verses 24 and 25 where it says, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, verse 24, verse 25, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You say, well, that's not Emmanuel. Well, the angel of the Lord has already told uh, uh, um, Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people. What is the word Jesus? God saves. Yeshua. God saves. God with us. God has come incarnate to live with man for the sake of paying the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and transformed. So Theophilus here could be certain that Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior was true because it is an accomplished faith. And we don't have time to go into all of those messianic fulfillments, those prophecies that were fulfilled, but it's an accomplished faith. It's built upon what Luke says, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In fact, he even goes so far as to bookend his gospel with that. Matthew, or in Luke 24, verses 44 through 48, Jesus there comes into the presence of his disciples, and he begins to explain in resurrected form how he is the fulfillment of everything that has been said in the law of the prophets. There's a second truth I want you to see. 
It's an admissible faith. The Christian faith is an admissible faith. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. See, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record eyewitness testimony about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Sometimes the eyewitness testimony is their own, right? Sometimes it's the eyewitness testimony of others. We know that Matthew and John were both disciples, both part of the 12. They lived and traveled with Jesus. They saw him do many, many miracles. John even had the privilege to go up during the the transfiguration there on the mountainside, and they saw Jesus in his glory, and they saw Moses and Elijah there with the glorified Jesus Christ. He records this, and he shares this. It's what we find in the Gospels. They personally saw his miracles. They were there when he fed the 5,000. They were there when he calmed the storms. They were there when he healed the blind and healed the sick. They saw him walk on water. They saw him after his resurrection. Personal eyewitnesses, they recorded the Gospels. Mark and Luke, however, were not part of the twelve. They came to faith maybe later on. Mark is maybe a little bit closer. Luke was a, definitely later on after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended to the Father. But they wrote Gospels as well. And so how did they do it? They interviewed. They investigated the historical claims regarding Jesus. And so therefore what we find in Luke's Gospel is eyewitness evidence that's admissible in a court of law. He's writing from that perspective. He's writing with that precision. Many scholars would even go so far as to believe that Luke and Acts are a companion or companion volumes written almost as a legal brief in the defense of the Apostle Paul. And so if that's the case, if you're writing a legal defense, you're definitely going to use evidence that can be admissed into a court of law. What we find here in the Christian gospel delivered to us through the Bible is a historical Jesus. The claims made by Luke, the claims made by the other biblical authors were not done in secret. They were done in space and time, and they left a historical footprint to follow. For example, the birth of Jesus is set in space and time. What does Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 tell us? Tells us the, who the, the, the governor was. Tells you where it's going on. Tells you where, where Joseph was taking Mary down from Nazareth to Judea. Space and time, it could be followed, it could be tracked. It's admissible as evidence in the court of law. So we can and we should know the truth because the Christian faith is an admissible faith. Thirdly, Christian faith is an authenticated faith. I want you to see at verse 3 what it says. Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What we have here before us is investigative journalism par excellence. Luke is doing his due diligence. It says here that he followed all things closely. You see, many, as I said, had written or taught on the life and the ministry of Jesus. And based on what Luke has said here in his own words, we can believe that he fully investigated all the claims. He's retaining what is true, what's been validated, what has passed passed the standard of, of scrutiny, and he's rejected everything else. And so what's left is what's true. What's left is what is right. What, what is left is what is authenticated. Luke set out to write, as he says, an accurate and an orderly account. 
The language used conveys the idea of a step-by-step catalog, and he's a very analytic type of personality. He's looking at it. He's writing. He's, he's, he's uh, 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 recording step-by-step, cataloging all of this. This journalistic approach, coupled with the fact that at the time of his writing, many eyewitnesses were still alive, means that what we have before us is trustworthy. It's true. Luke was a systematic historian whose work was never questioned during the days of the early church. In fact, it was fully embraced as being a true accounting of the historical life and ministry of Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Well, you look at church history, and what you don't see is credible people. For that matter, I couldn't find anybody who dismissed Luke's gospel as not being an accurate account. In fact, it went so far as to, to lead us to this understanding. Marcion, the great heretic who is known for cutting out of the Bible the parts that he didn't like, never, never brought accusation against Luke's gospel, but instead held it up as being the word of God. And so we can and we should know the truth because the Christian faith is an authenticated faith. But that's not true of many, if not all, other religions. Do you know there are aspects of other religions that cannot be substantiated? I learned this this week. Didn't know this before this week. But in the Quran, there are claims that Muhammad went and visited Jerusalem. I'll be with uh, some of our folks in uh, a little over a month, month and a half or so. We're going to get on a plane out of Dallas. We're going to fly to Israel. We're going to spend 10 days over there. It's going to be a glorious trip. So we'll be in Jerusalem. I'll get to see these things. But the Quran makes the claims that Muhammad went into Jerusalem, and therefore, because he went there and something happened, I guess, in a, in, a, in a major way, that is a holy city. There's dispute over where the Dome of the Rock is, where the Jews say, no, this is where the temple was. The Muslims say, no, this is where Muhammad did something special. And yet there's nothing in history that tells us definitively that Muhammad ever visited Jerusalem. Interesting. Never do that till this week. Another thing that I have known for a while, if you think of just Mormonism, Joseph Smith claims to have been visited by the angel named Moroni, who called him to restore God's church here on earth, and that happened, and then four years later came back and helped him uncover some golden plates, helped him interpret those golden plates, which became what they have in the Book of Mormon. And yet history offers no record of any of those claims. What do you mean by that? They're not in the museum. How do you lose golden plates? I'm not disparaging him. I'm not trying to be uh, hypercritical or mean-spirited at all. But if you have golden plates that give you scripture, how are those lost in such a short amount of time? It's only been a few hundred years. History doesn't back up, doesn't authenticate the claims made by these particular spiritual religious leaders in history. But what we have in the gospel, what we have in the word of God is a faith that is authenticated. It is true. Number four, a fourth true. Now I've got a, I got a couple minutes here. The Christian faith is an assuring faith. Look at verse four. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. The purpose of Luke's gospel here is to bring certainty to his readers concerning their understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus. He wants there to be no ambiguity, no room for uh, 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 of questioning or, or, or suspicion or just not sure of what's 
has taken place. Luke wishes for Theophilus and any others who have questions to be certain of what they know of what they've heard, certain of the truth. So this verse here informs us that Theophilus knew something about Jesus. Now, we don't know anything else about Theophilus other than what Luke gives us in Luke and in Acts. Most likely, he was probably some sort of Roman uh, um, figure. His name is a Roman, or it's a Greek name. Uh, He's some sort of figure. I tend to believe that Theophilus was a believer, that he was a young Christian, that he'd come to faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps, as some would believe, that Theophilus is is someone who is seeking, he's wanting to know the truth, and and he knows something about Jesus, but he's not fully embraced Jesus. So Luke is writing to that end. I don't know, but I tend to believe he is a Believer, And I believe Luke here is writing to solidify, to firm up his faith, to establish him, if you will, in the gospel. But regardless, Luke's purpose was to bring certainty to him in knowing the truth. Today, most, if not all of us, have heard something about Jesus, right? If you've walked in this morning and you know nothing about Jesus, at least you just sat underneath my teaching for the last 20 minutes, you've been participating in songs that sang about Jesus for the last 30 minutes before that. So you have 50 minutes of setting under some sort of umbrella that informs you about the life and ministry of Jesus. But most of us have heard something about Jesus. You come from a background, some may come from a background that has a different understanding of who Jesus was. Some people are... are, um, they're coming from a background of, of other religious activity. I mentioned Mormonism. Their understanding of who Jesus is is not our understanding of who Jesus is. You just need to know that. Jesus is not a son of God. Jesus is the son of God. There's a big difference there. Jesus and, and, and Lucifer are not on the same level, and yet Mormonism would, would, would put them on the same level. One chose to do bad. One chose to do good. That's not the gospel. So when we look at Jesus, we're influenced by our background. We're influenced by what we've known and learned before. Each Christmas season, uh, we hear all kinds of reinterpretations of Christ. Uh, The truth can only or can easily get lost in the noise about Jesus. And what Luke here does for us is he centers us again. He brings us back to the core and says, this is who Jesus is. This is what we're to believe about Jesus in his life and and in his ministry. It assures us that what we read in the Bible is the truth, that God is, or that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh, that he is God with us, Emmanuel. He's not some lofty deity that has created and stepped away. He's a great, exalted God who has stepped into his creation. He's the God who is the Savior, who by his death, burial, and resurrection has satisfied God the Father's justice against our sin. Luke lays all of this out in his gospel. And so we can and we should know the truth because the Christian faith is an assuring faith. It helps us understand that I am loved by God, that I am free in Christ. That, 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 that my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, that what the Bible says about who I am is true. That's why Luke is writing here to assure us in our faith that we can have a solid foundation rather than walking on shifting sands. Shifting sands. So who is Jesus? What does he look like to you right now? Those are two questions that we kind of began with this morning. The answer to these questions can only be found in the pages of Scripture's. 
The Bible presents Jesus to us. That's what the Bible's answer to those questions is. It's Jesus. It's everything in this Bible. It's everything in these 66 books. That's who Jesus is. He is very God of very God. He's not a man who's been exalted to deity. No, he's God who took on human flesh. He's very God of very God. Perhaps this morning you do come from a background that views Jesus different from the Bible's depiction. You know Jesus to be a son of God. Or you know him to be a great teacher. You know him to be a great prophet. The, the amazing thing about Islam is that they would never deny Jesus being some sort of historical figure. They would say, he's absolutely a prophet. He was a great prophet. He did great things. He, he was a great teacher. But they would say, he's not as great as Muhammad. Muhammad's the last prophet. He's the final prophet. He is the one who introduces us to Allah. Now, all that Allah wants us to know. So I'm sitting here. Some listening to us online, maybe you fall into those camps. You know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but you've never believed him to be the Messiah. Here's what I, I think is the coolest thing that we're seeing right now at Red Lane is God is beginning to just bring people from all different backgrounds into the life of our church. Different denominational backgrounds. Uh, different religions even. I've learned in recent days of, of people in their upbringing or, or even in their adult life participating in, in different religious uh, backgrounds, and yet they're finding themselves in a Southern Baptist church, and, and God is bringing them here. Why is that? I believe it's because God is leading them to find the truth, Amen. the truth of who he is, the truth of how much he loves them, the truth of what he's done for them through his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning... What I've laid out before you is what Luke has laid out for Theophilus, saying the, what I'm writing, why I'm writing this, is so that you would know the truth. It's an apologetic, if you will, so that you can understand what the Bible says about Jesus and believe it to be true. I grew up in church kind of off and on. If you've been around a while, you've heard my testimony numerous times, but uh, I would say that I've always believed the Bible, right? I can't imagine, or I can't remember, I should say, a time in my life where I just said, nah, I don't think that Bible's true. I, I just grew up in that. I've, I've just believed it. Even long before I was a Christian, I believed the Bible. I believed in that this is God's Word. It was my upbringing, but there had to come to a place in my life where it was more than just a cognitive thought, more than just my upbringing. I had to come to a point when I said, this is more than just a historical document that I say I believe. It has to be a document that's living that changes me. In April of 1997, as a freshman in college, I took that heritage that I had, that spiritual upbringing that I had, and, and it was a good thing. It got me on the launching pad, but finally, the gospel became clear to me, and it was no more just head knowledge. It became heart knowledge for me. The truth became personal. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says this, he who has the Son, S-O-N, has life. Who's he speaking of? Jesus. He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You see, before that day, I had religion and a good religion too. I was one of the most religious people I knew. I had two quiet times a day. I was a Sunday school teacher. I was a freshman in college. I taught seventh grade boys. I'd have been a, a leader in my student ministry in high school. I was doing every single thing you could possibly do to look like a good Southern Baptist Christian. I looked the part. I played the part. And yet I was internally a mess. Why? Because though I knew the truth cerebrally, I did not know the truth in my heart. It had to change me. This morning, some of you may be sitting here, and that's where you're at. You need to come to Jesus 
Say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm religious, I've tried, or whatever your background is, it's never worked. I need you. I want to know you. You are the truth. I need you to change my life. Some of you this morning, you're Christians, but you haven't been walking according to the truth. Thursday night, our, our staff and our spouses were at a Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, our, our state convention's uh, Christmas banquet. Steve put that on for us. He does it every year. It's an awesome event. And one of our pastors in our state convention was the, the speaker there, and he, he made a statement just challenging us, encouraging us. And he says, you guys know the truth. You got to live it. Go live what you preach. Go do what you know. For some of us as Christians, man, that's sometimes not the case. So today, Paul, or Luke would say, man, know the truth. And I would add to that, let's live the truth. 